With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Ramon Alon. And would you believe it? There's yet another host, Isaac Butler. <laughs> That's right. All three of us are here again because this is a very special episode about our creative New Year's resolutions. We'll talk about our creative goals for the year, big ones and small ones, and we'll talk about how to stick to those goals. First of all, Roman and Isaac, do you usually make New Year's resolutions, creative or otherwise? I do. You know, is that so square of me? Mm-hmm. I, I'm a bit of a square, I guess. I, a couple of years ago, I resolved to keep better track of the books that I read. And I've done a pretty good job of it. I also resolved to eat more vegetarian meals. I've been sort of successful there. I think it's a kind of a nice ritual. What about you, Isaac? Well, I just... I'm loving learning that Ruman is a square. I didn't think of Ruman as, as a square, but I also think if we could get like a sample of him saying that so that we could just like press a button and we just hear, I'm a bit of a square. That would be great. Anyway, um, I am bad at habits forming, I guess, in some ways. And so my resolutions work like that. Some years I make resolutions, sometimes I don't. It's usually actually driven by my wife. And we'll be like, oh, what are your New Year's resolutions this year? And if she asks that year, I make some up. And then I stick to them pretty well. But and, but if she doesn't ask, they, ju- they just <laughs> never happen, to be completely honest. Wow. Uh, all right. Well, let us move on to our specific goals for 2021. I'll go first. My first creative goal is to maintain the habit of making art every day, which was relatively easy to adopt in 2020 when there was no going out. So I want to continue that even after there is at least some kind of socializing possible. And I'm also trying to be more optimistic, hence my certainty that we'll be socializing soonish. Um, I know it's easier to maintain habits that you've already established. Establishing them is the hard thing, but I do think that anything that we did in 2020 is, you know, it doesn't count in some way. So like if you started a habit in 2020 and the weird year that it was, it doesn't necessarily carry over. Um, So when things are a little bit different, it might not be daily anymore. I don't want to beat myself up if I don't manage to meet an arbitrary goal about something that doesn't really matter. Um, Or certainly not rub myself of sleep just to you know, make a bad sketch. But I also want to recognize that it has made me feel better, even if I don't really understand why. And my plan for achieving it, very important, is mostly just to pay attention, um, to make time for idle scribbling or tinkering or gluing. It is very de-stressing. And now that I know that, I want to continue. June, I, f- I feel like you're describing this commitment to creative expression the way that some people describe going to the gym. Yeah. You know, and when I had a personal trainer, the thing I remember him telling me was that it's okay to take a day off to build the more sustainable practice of fitness generally. Mm-hmm. So I think you're right not to be too arbitrarily rigorous and say, like, you have to do some sketching for 20 minutes before bed, yeah. even though you're exhausted. You know, maybe the occasional day away from that artistic outlet 
won't mean that you've completely failed at meeting the real terms of your resolution. I think that is a great point. I think setting reasonable goals, being kind and humane to Mm -hmm. yourself is a really important part of sticking to any habit. And I say that as someone who's not good at sticking to habits because I'm also (laughs) very hard on myself. Um, I think also that if the goal is to do it as regularly as possible, as close to every day as possible, uh, and that might be more important than the quality of what's produced, yeah. right? It's the yeah, activity sure. that might be more important, yes. right? So yes. like I wouldn't ca- – it doesn't matter if the sketch is bad or not, just to – not to critique your, your the way you talked about it. But, <laughs> like you know, fantastic it doesn't, it, it, sketches, it, it, yes. Right. It doesn't matter if the sketch is bad or not. It doesn't matter if the collage, you know, looks a bit of a mess, right? It's not – you know, <laughs> Paul Hollywood is not going to come and judge your uh, collage-making skills. More is the pity. Yeah. It, you know, um, uh, it, you're – doing this because you find it fulfilling and nurturing. And so I, I, I just think just keeping in mind that it's just about the habit rather than the result and being yeah. kind to yourself, I think is going to make it a lot easier. Okay. I, okay. I guess uh, I will go next day. Eh? Um, I'm Canadian now. My, <laughs> my first hockey. I know. It's just uh, the rest of this episode is just going to be kids in the hall references. All right. So my first creative New Year's resolution is to do more non-purposeful creative work. Like I am a professional writer. And so it's very difficult for me to see writing that doesn't have a clear end purpose before I even start doing it as worth doing. Even though I know, I know in my head, this is something that is worth doing. It's an important part of nurturing the creative practice. But I'm also like, I should be pitching something because like (laughs) I need to make money as a writer or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's very hard for me to make space in my day for it. Um, and particularly once this book is in, like really in, mm. I want to be making that space again, but it's been a really long time and it's hard to just psych myself up to do it even. Isaac, I have a really good strategy for you. Yes. And I am a really big fan of the arbitrary exercise. So here are some examples of things that I've assigned to students I've worked with. Write 333 words exactly no more, no less. You write a story that turns another piece of art, like a painting or a film, into a story that you are telling. Write the story of what happens in an episode of sitcom television that you know really well, but do it in the form of a children's storybook. Giving myself this kind of insane task, it's like <laughs> homework, it frees me from writing to make something significant or that I can publish because nobody wants to read your episode of Frasier written in the style of Dr. Seuss, but writing it might actually awaken something. So now I'm curious um, if this kind of non-purposeful, arbitrary writing that you both talked about, has it ever made its way into what you might call your real work? Um, By which I guess I mean your published work. I mean, I can see the point of it in a kind of abstract sense, but I would love to know more about how that right brain writing intersects if it does with your professional writing i think some of it's just about developing your capacity as a writer your imagination your ability Mm. to make intuitive links 
changing up your sentences. Cause let me tell you, you know, like I'm at the end of, I'm, I'm rereading this manuscript of this book and it's like, you know, every writer goes through this moment where they're like, I need some new sentence structures. These are getting very old. I'm sure Ruman, you've had this experience as well. So some of it's just about developing those new tools. But, um, the first thing I ever wrote, the first book length thing I ever manuscript I ever wrote, which has not been published. It probably won't be. I think I've kind of killed that project, but there were a lot of bits of it that started as kind of intuitive, arbitrary work in graduate school. And then I realized that I was constantly circling around the same thing. And so then I decided to write more and more and more about that thing. I have published, I think, four stories that are the result of this kind of arbitrary exercise. One of the exercises I give myself a lot is to write a story using the title of a song. And so I will give myself a song and then I will write a story that either works towards that title or somehow includes it. I've published two of those stories. Another exercise I did was to write a story in which almost every sentence began with the word maybe. I think that actually in the original draft, every sentence began with the word maybe. But ultimately, in revision, I sort of changed the strategy, but I did publish that story. And I had another exercise, which was to write a story in five paragraphs, where each paragraph was one sentence long, was a very long run-on sentence. And I published that story also. So I do think that sometimes these, I'm not sure I ever would have found myself to those forms organically, Uh but I think it did actually give me something solid to work on and hone, and then I was able to publish them. So I wouldn't discount what this kind of thing can do. But I think Isaac is right. It is mostly like getting on the treadmill on a day that you don't feel like, you know? Yeah. So my first creative New Year's resolution for 2021 is an embarrassing one to admit, but it is to be better at discovery. I really need some help here. I'm, I'm so adept at figuring out what books to read. I really understand what it is I'm interested in intellectually when it comes to reading, but I am clueless about film, about theater, about music, about television. I mean, television alone. I mean, I see people tweeting about things and I can't believe their <laughs> television shows. Like, where is everybody hearing about these television shows? I'm really at a loss. Ruan, now all I want to do is start a Substack newsletter that's really just like TV guidance for one person, and that's you. <laughs> um, I, I feel like I have a really good sense of what decent TV is coming down the road, and it might be from Twitter or my email inbox or even the New York Times is really great watching newsletter. Uh, but that's because TV is my favorite medium. I know what you mean exactly because I have become utterly like totally clueless at this point, about music, to the extent that I, every time I hear the name of a band, I wonder if the person is kind of trying to fool me, yeah. <laughs> you know, in the way that we used to when we were 12. Uh, and so I guess that what, what that makes me think, um, as a person who has given up on a whole lot of artistic genres, is that maybe you just don't care about TV and maybe that's okay. You know, it's okay to give up on entire streams of artistic output. Maybe not as a cultural critic. I know that can be hard. Um, but you know, you've watched a lot of TV and, and watched a lot of movies this year for out for working alone. So, um, I guess if you really wanted to know more about television, if you cared as much as you do about, for example, books with which you have no problem keeping up, you would. And so I think just let it go. Just watch what you watch. Just turn on, turn randomly turn on Netflix and see what was big uh, a year ago. And, and that'll be just fine. I, I think that 
part of what's going on here is that writing is your life. Books are your life. I mean, you know, yes. obviously your husband, and your kids and this podcast are your life. Now, but, you know, <laughs> but uh, uh, writing is your life and um, you're surrounded by that life, by books. You know, you're an incredibly gifted novelist, an incredibly gifted book critic. And and so, you know, you as a, just a result of being those things have had to define a sensibility and taste for yourself in that arena that you haven't been forced to define in all the other realms. So it can feel like when someone makes a recommendation, you're like, I have no idea whether that's going to be a giant waste of time for me personally, because I haven't developed that sensibility mm -hmm. yet or whatever is what it kind of sounds like. Um, but there's no way to do it, but to do it. Right. So like yeah. the, I think the thing that might be your friend here is uh, uh, lists. Uh. That, you know, just when you read a thing on Twitter where someone's like, uh, someone who you respect is like, this show gave me life or whatever. You just write down the name of it and then sometime later you sit down and you check it out and you either like it or you don't. Mm -hmm. To give an example, I am on a group chat with a bunch of other writers, most of whom are actually novelists, right? And any time they speak highly of a book, I write it down on my notes app. But it's like at some point I'm going to be... A, books are magic looking for a new book and I'll just look at the list and get one of those. Or, and I do a similar thing for, for film. I don't do a similar thing for TV sh because like there's, there's so much of it out there. It's, it's not that hard to find a new TV show to watch. Right. But um, in terms of books and film that that's what I do. Uh, and in particular, I try to pay attention to the, you know, for the films that directors I like talk about mm -hmm. in interviews or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and, and, and go from there. And then I think eventually you actually do develop a sensibility and a curiosity towards that sensibility and the problem just kind of takes care of itself after that. That 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 would be my particular advice for solving that problem. No, Ruman, just just give up. That's what I'm <laughs> We'll we'll check in in June and see where I've landed. <laughs> All right. Cool. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more of our New Year's creative resolutions after this. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. 
Hey, working listeners, we want to remind you that you can write to us or call us anytime, not just at the end of the year. Call us anytime with questions, concerns, or quandaries. We especially like quandaries about creative work. Give us a ring at 304 933 WORK or drop us a line at working at slate.com. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's move on to our next round of creative New Year's resolutions for 2021. My next creative goal is to make use of the research that I have been pursuing in a slightly self-deceivingly low-key way for the last couple of years. I'm aware that I need to do some like serious thinking to figure out even what the ideal shape of a project would be. And it's really easy to say that, but it's hard to implement. Um, Isaac, I'm guessing, and that's all it is, that the method was something you'd been reading about and noodling for a long time before you sold a book on the topic. Um, How did you go about making the shift from, you know, it would be a great book to, I'm writing a book about this great subject. How did you do that? Well, in the case of the method, you know, uh, that book is edited and was acquired by the editor of The World Only Spins Forward, the the first ah. book I did. And he said, I would like you to write another book. <laughs> and I said, here are some ideas of books I've wanted to write. And he said, that one, try to write a proposal about that one and see if there's a book in it. And I did. And that turned into the method. So in that case, Amazing. it was actually an outside authority was very hands on and saying, this is the thing. If If after you've pursued it, you think there's a book there. You know, let's try to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're in a different position, which is another one I I have also been in of like, I am interested in making something out of this. I don't even know what genre or form or medium I yeah. want that thing to be. Uh, I think that the issue is that this kind of problem is not cognitively solvable. It can only be solved through actually taking action. So Mm. in this case, I don't know what the subject matter is or what you're thinking of doing with it. So I'm just going to speak through my own hypothetical. If you're, Mm -hmm. if you were thinking about writing a nonfiction book on the subject, I would say, okay, you've spent a couple years noodling around, uh, actually try to write a book proposal about it and see what happens. And over the course of doing that, you will learn a whole bunch of things about the project. What you might learn about the project is actually it's a series of 20 collages, Uh, (laughs) uh, right? It is not a book. It's a series of 20 collages and I want it to be in an art gallery or whatever. And then you're just going to have to change and do something to pursue it in that direction. So, Mm -hmm. so I think you've been at it long enough that it's time to just like pick a concrete path for it and try to do that and see what happens. And you'll learn a lot about the project and what its eventual form, et cetera, is from that process. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. It can fundamentally change your relationship to the thing once you give it some shape and some scope, right? You transform it from this nebulous dream into something that you can actually accomplish. With respect to a book, or even if it were a podcast or you know a film proposal, you, you need to make something that's like an outline, which is just a promise to yourself, but it can help you understand what this big hard thing is. And, you know, you could begin it and maybe someday finish it. For a future episode of this podcast, I spoke to a scholar who spent years on a work that ended up being about a thousand pages. And it's absolutely insane, but 
she did do it. And it really can be done. And I think that's really important to remember that once you start thinking about it as a task and not just sort of a nebulous idea, however big that task is, it can be accomplished. Thank you. All right, here is one of mine, uh, which is that uh, I I really feel like I need to diversify my cultural diet, which is not to say I actually read and see things that that are fairly diverse, but they're all in English originally and usually by American or British or immigrant to America or Britain uh, writers and artists. And I want to get out of that comfort zone a little bit, right? I feel like, you know, America's part of a, a bigger world and I as an artist what? need to need to have some experience of that. You know, I feel a little cloistered. And so I don't know that I'm looking for advice on how to do that because really, let's be honest, the trick is to just do it, right? It's like choose the subtitled movie, buy the book in translation, uh, you know, et cetera. So yeah. it, it's less about that than more than like, what are some recent works uh, whether it's TV or film or whatever that the two of you have encountered that meant a lot to you that were maybe in translation or, or mm. from a, a, another culture you didn't know a lot about. Gosh, my own reading is, you know, as parochial as you're saying yours is because that's how this country functions. Unfortunately, two books that I read this year, one is a book called Tokyo Ueno Station by oh. Yu Muri, she actually won the National Book Award in for translated literature in this country. Um, I read that book because I was reviewing it. And I'm really glad that I did. It's a really interesting artifact of a very Japanese sensibility. Um, I also was reviewing another book by the Kenyan writer Ngujiwa Tiongo um, called The Perfect Nine. And it was a great opportunity to read a novel written in verse about, you know, the founding of this particular tribe uh, of the Kenyan people and to read his memoir. Isaac, it's just, as you say, you know how to find these things, whether it's just a matter of going to McNally Jackson and walking into the part of the store where African literature is shelved and picking up something that feels totally unfamiliar. It's really just about holding yourself accountable and forcing yourself to engage with the products of a culture to which you weren't born. Yeah, I also, I don't have any specific recommendations right this second, Um, even though I used to, for a short time, many years ago, I ran a a company that published the works of women writers in translation, lots of Norwegian, because the Norwegians are very generous with subsidies for translations. Um, But I would say um, to, you know, it's very hard to go to a section of of a bookstore and just, okay, I'm going to read, like, find something that you have specific interest in, whether it's a place that you visited, whether it's a subject matter, and then kind of see where that takes you. I I think, um, I mean, you're a very smart guy. Uh, I know you wouldn't just be like, I'm just going to randomly pick a book. You would not do that. Um, But just kind of allow yourself that, that thing that we've, I think, become so familiar with on the web which is like, um, you know, following links. Um, we, we allow ourselves to go down rabbit holes on the web in a way that we tend not to in quote-unquote real life. So whether it's a particular place, a particular subject matter, just kind of take a, a direction uh, rather than just um, this big, general, huge subject matter. That's a very worthy resolution, though, and I I applaud your <laughs> I applaud your desire to really think about the syllabus that you're working from personally. 
My second creative resolution for 2021 is to develop a relationship with my eye. You know, I can't draw at all. Although my kids are constantly asking me to draw monsters and skeletons and (laughs) flamingos and cars. Should I take a class? You know, am I supposed to take up collage? Like, if I want to paint, do I need to blow $1,000 on supplies and then owning them will somehow force my hand and make me dabble? Like... Or will it just be more garbage that I've wasted money on? Like, I I feel like I spend all of my time with books and I want to do something other, but I don't really have a good next step in mind. I have advice for you, Roman. Get thee to YouTube. There are, like, really a lot of artists, really good artists, making videos. Some of them that are, like, explicitly tutorials, some of which are just them painting or drawing or doing whatever it is that they do. Um... But I have found that just watching people draw demystifies the process in a way that helps me to just go ahead and tackle it. And, you know, drawing is definitely something that you get better at with repetition. Though by better, I suspect that what I really mean is that like, you develop your own style. Um, I have been trying to draw more for, for many years and how I've tackled that has changed. Like I began by watching a lot of tutorials and trying to um, mimic them and that was that was great at some stages and now I just sort of sometimes just kind of sit and and twiddle as it were and what I've learned is that I shouldn't try to like be as good as these people that I admire I should just try to draw something that gives me happiness that makes me happy to look at Um, I'm you know I'm never going to draw a photorealistic portrait and that is fine Um, But I kind of like um, drawing people who I am looking at on my television. And it's like a weird thing that I just do. I I have these red and blue pencils that I, I, very specific pencils that I just sit there on the couch drawing the people on TV. And it's a weird thing that I do, but it it makes me happy. I, I actually have a question because you said you wanted to develop your eye and then you started talking about drawing class. So I, I just didn't know if, those two things, like you want to learn how to draw or is it to a specific, uh, is I, there a specific end goal that drawing serves? That was the thing that no, I was confused about. No, I think my, my, I think I have a sense that I use my brain a lot, right? I read a lot and then I write, but I don't have this other kind of, I have a sense that a visual form of expression, whether drawing or painting or collage or whatever it is, is a little less intellectual. I mean, it's not that it's not intellectual, but that it's sort of more connected to how you see and to a feeling. When June describes sitting on her couch and sketching, what she's talking about is sort of something, a feeling that I want that writing does not give me. Yeah. Okay. Totally. That, that, that makes sense. Um, I think that the YouTube advice is absolutely great. I would not plunk down a thousand dollars to buy a bunch of <laughs> art supplies. Agreed. You know, bu- buy some watercolors, turn on uh, the Sunday in the Park with George original cast recording, and go at it. No, do not do that. Do not do that. Um, but I also think it might be worth taking a class just to force you yeah. to yeah. do something for a certain number of hours yeah. a week. You yeah. know, I wouldn't be able to recommend someone, but I know I'm sure you have friends who could recommend a good, a good person, whether it would be one-on-one instruction, which is what I would need because I get very embarrassed during group classes about anything. Um, and then that'll just force you to spend a certain number of hours a yeah. week or a month or whatever doing it. 
And um, I think that would just like really help get over that initial hump of like, I am utterly incompetent, <laughs> you know, at, at even tracing this thing. What the hell am I doing? You know, yeah. I do know that you're someone who loves visual art and gets a great I, amount yeah, of solace out of it. Yeah, and I wonder if, yeah. if part of this is a bit of a reaction to our inability to go and access that mm-hmm. art right mm-hmm. now that, you know, we can't so. go to the Guggenheim yeah. or whatever and yeah. go stare at a show and then cry. And, yeah. you know, um, uh, so you've got to, you've got to like make it if you're going to experience it. Yeah. Uh, it is one of the ways in which 2020 does really will continue to inform what we do into 2021. I think you're absolutely right. I'm missing. There's a particular kind of transcendence that looking at something provides that reading something cannot provide for me and I miss it, but maybe YouTube can provide it. We'll find out. Totally. (laughs) All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with more of our own creative resolutions. Raise your hand if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbet, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, And Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. All right, let's move on to our final round of creative New Year's resolutions for 2021. My final goal is to read more. It's so basic, or should I say fundamental. I've always been a reader. and that's, that's what's allowed me to have a very different life from all the previous generations of my family. It's like my identity. But in the last year, despite not going out, I haven't been reading as much, and certainly not just for fun, whatever that means. Um, Partly it's the loss of the commute, though I'm very lucky to have a short commute, even in normal times. But I think it was mostly that it didn't go away on vacation. When I did take an out-of-town break just for a few days in November, I read something like three books in four days, you know. that. So I know I haven't lost my capacity. I've just gotten out of the habit. So since I can't single-handedly bring back vacation travel, I will at least reinstate my own habit of reading being the last thing I do before falling asleep. Roman, you're such a reader. 
I mean, I really do. I, I completely understand where you're coming from. I really miss all of the time that we spend knocking around the city, right? In mm-hmm. in waiting rooms, on subway trains, when you're early at a bar to meet a friend. I get a lot of reading done in those moments, a lot. Despite the fact that I do have to read so much for work, I very, very rarely read during the day. As you say, when I'm on vacation, it's a completely different thing. And I'll read five books in a matter of six days because I'm spending all day reading and doing nothing else. (laughs) At the moment, I read at the end of the day. And so what happens is that I often stay up way too late because some of that reading just has to get done. Mm. I was up until one last night reading because I have to read this book that I'm reviewing. So maybe this goes back to why I watch basically no television. (laughs) Right. You know, and maybe what you should do, June, is just sort of set a firm bedtime for yourself and account in that bedtime for 30 minutes of just reading and I'm someone who can't actually fall asleep without reading. Even if I'm exhausted, even if I've like come home drunk from a party, I will read for 10 minutes before I fall asleep. And once you sort of become habituated to something like that, it sort of takes over. And so I think maybe you just need to get back to that place of being habituated to it. I completely agree. And I miss the subway, which is where I did an enormous amount of reading, uh, particularly in my 20s when I was temping at Condé Nast. You know, I would read the subway ride up and the subway ride back was when I did a lot of my reading. Um, yeah. yeah, you just, I mean, the, the big thing is to make time during the day for it. What I find personally, because I do read every night before I go to bed, it's the last thing I do for sure, is I can't start a book that way, though. What I find personally is that the mental Mm. effort it takes to understand the basic logic of a book and what it is doing, uh, I can't actually do that at the end of the day. So there's a weird thing where if I'm starting a book, I have to set aside time during the day for an hour just to like get through the first hump, you know, and then at night I can then do whatever. So it it may not only be bedtime that you need to do it, but I just think once you, once you've set aside some time, you'll start to get, you'll start to get really into it. May I also add, if you are trying to develop a reading habit, because my wife over the past couple of years has been trying to read more and more despite having an increasingly demanding job. Mm -hmm. And so we've talked Mm -hmm. about this a lot um, is grow very comfortable with abandoning books if they're not doing Mm. it for you. Because if you stick yeah. with a book that like really you're, really what you do is you're on your phone for an hour and then you read one page and go to sleep or whatever, yeah. that's yeah. because that book is not doing it for you. And you should yeah. just, if you've read 50 pages of it or whatever the threshold is, just be like, book, you are not the one for me <laughs> and, uh, and, and find a new one. Um, it, yeah. And, yeah. And there's no shame in doing that. There's always more good books to be read. That's really smart. You know, actually, I'm going to be a little kind to myself and just note one thing that I sort of not really taken on board. Like my eyes are sometimes tired at the end of the day. Yeah. Like that's something that I'm yeah. aware of. But I have recently, I finally signed up for Audible. I've been listening to, um, I guess we call them, I was going to say books on tape, which I guess just proves what a very <laughs> old person I am, to audiobooks. Um, because there was one specific book that, book that I've always wanted to read, but I just don't get on with big books. So I really wanted to read The Power Broker. I listened to it on Audible and I'm like, oh, wow, this actually is a good way and like I could read at the end of the day without reading um and I have kept my membership so um yeah that that's something that I can do without wearing out my eyes and uh, it's reading but I completely disagree that that's not reading I really think that that's reading and I thought that even before I started liking audio because I normally audiobooks for me are for long drives 
right? Yeah. Like that's the only time I've ever used them. Um, but since uh, we got our new dog, I listened to audiobooks while walking her because it's exactly enough physical activity to keep me from getting bored while I'm listening. And I'm listening to Rebecca right now. Oh my goodness. And, uh, and loving him. Before that, I listened to Dennis Johnson's Train Dreams, which is a truly brilliant audiobook. Will Patton reads it. Um, and I, you know, it's reading. It's the same thing. It's the same thing through a different means. And so uh, I don't, I don't think that's, that's nothing. All right, it is time for my third creative New Year's resolution, which is to be a bit less extremely <gasps> online. Whoa. And uh, I actually find this one very difficult. Uh, I mean, I, I already, I'm not on Facebook anymore. I mean, my account exists, but I don't mm-hmm. check it because it's destroying the world and blah, 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 blah. Yep. I was destroying my psyche, you know, et cetera. But, you know, I do find it hard to be less online because I've actually made a lot of important friendships and relationships via social media, stretching back to running a BBS in high school. You know, oh like, like I've met a lot of people that way. June, you and I first met on Twitter, in that's fact. Right, so, right, yeah. you know, and, and also like, um, once the book is in, I'll be freelancing more again. And frankly, keeping up with what's going on in the kind of social media conversation is somewhat important to effectively pitching pieces. But at the same time, I don't want to feel like social media is defining my interests or that it's become like my assignment editor. Like you reach these moments where like every website and magazine is talking about the same thing, but that thing that they're talking about is just some bullshit that happened on Twitter. <laughs> and I just don't want to fall victim to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so yeah. I want to be able to, to take a step back while still being involved enough that my professional and personal life is enriched by it. And I find it very challenging, but, uh, I know that for example, Ruman has a, has a, is a Twitter power user. So, uh, <laughs> you know, um, uh, How I thought you guys might have some good advice. Oh, what an that. embarrassing way to talk no, about I, me. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think, I don't think of you as someone who's completely absorbed into that mm. Borg collective, mm-hmm. but yet you, use it you mm. get stuff out of it you write good jokes on it you know mm-hmm. etc and so forth yeah, yeah. i do want to just defend social media as like part of the larger as, as an aspect of contemporary life that is oh, not totally. you know like i think it can be very interesting as you said i've met really interesting people there i've had really interesting professional opportunities come my way there and i've entertained myself and i've discovered <laughs> books or t- you know i hear about television shows that i think are real but i can't tell because i don't know anything <laughs> about television um so it is a, it is very useful and i think what you're really what you're fundamentally asking about is how to exert some discipline over yourself and how to avoid something that is designed to be like a bag of Doritos, irresistible. An endless bag of Doritos. And it's very, very difficult for the individual psyche to stand up to that because, of course, teams of people have designed it so that you can't. I think if you find a particular thing psychically damaging, as I know many people find Instagram, right, because you're seeing visual evidence of a life that looks better than your own, then I think you should just avoid it. You should just take it off of your phone. The other thing that you can do, I think, is And that's, to be clear, sorry to interrupt, but to be clear, that is what I did with Facebook. I was like, this is destroying my psyche. I need to get it out of my life. And I think that's good. Whereas other things about social media, I'm like, this is a good thing. A lot of the time, actually, for me, it just gets out of balance. It gets irritating sometimes. I mean, I do think that, like, those apps like Freedom, which curtail your ability to access certain things, 
can feel silly and can feel like you're sort of like putting this arbitrary, you're putting it into a lockbox for no particular reason, but freedom, which in case you don't know, it's like you set time limits and you restrict your ability to access certain things. It could be useful in this particular sense. Like if you say, I'm not going to look at Twitter between the hours of nine and two because I have this thing on and it'll be a pain in the ass to, you know, put in all of the codes and deactivate freedom. (laughs) Maybe something like that will just put the, constraints on your own use rather than having to summon the discipline from within. I have what might be a crazy idea. I was I was about to say solution, then I, even before it came out of my mouth, I pulled it right back. Um, <laughs> one of the things I was thinking about doing this year, and ultimately I'm like, mm, I probably wouldn't do it, was to like write letters to people. Like I'm online all day, mm-hmm. but I don't really connect with people outside of work or, or in like a significant way at work often. And so I was like, okay, just write one letter to to one old friend or new friend or whatever every month. Well, maybe that's a bit weird and too specific, but just to do something analog every day, um, you know, to, to do something that doesn't take you off social media, because I can tell you're not demonizing social media per se. It just sounds like, as Ramon says, you just want a little more discipline. You want something that just kind of takes takes you out of it for at least some time every day. Um, so maybe it's a matter of just making uh, some sp- explicit time for analog activities. Um, I mean, obviously, you're spending time with your family maybe that's enough uh, time away from social media. Uh, but just to, just to take a break from it. Great. Thank you both. Let me know how that goes. You can, you can <laughs> DM me on Twitter and let me know how your social media <laughs> discipline goes. <laughs> um, my final New Year's resolution isn't actually really that creative. It's much more practical. But I am doing a lot. I'm hosting this podcast. I'm writing a column for The New Republic. I'm reviewing books. I'm writing a big magazine profile for the first time. I'm writing a short story, a a really long one, as it turns (laughs) out. And I'm writing a novel. I need a system for managing this. With the caveat that I'm an idiot when it comes to technology, right? I can barely manage our household Google calendar. How can I say on top of these different endeavors, besides scrawling lists and like sticky notes to myself all over every available piece of scrap paper. Roman, I I am struggling so hard to contain myself here because I'm one of those people who are so obsessed with planners and planning that I spend a good chunk of every December in a process known in Japanese as techo kaigi, which is when you figure out how you're going to use all the planners that you've bought for the next year. I have five 2021 planners thus far. There's still a couple, there's still a little bit of time, not including my own dated work planner. And that includes one that I ordered directly from Japan. So I know you're not going to go from no planner to five planners. It'll probably be six by the time you hear this. Um, But I do recommend something like a Jibun Techo, which is a Japanese planner, which a few U.S. retailers stock, um, just to get organized, very straightforward. But it's not about like a special system. You just really need a place to keep track of tasks that you need to accomplish and when they need to be done by. So it doesn't need to be overcomplicated. A simple notebook will actually achieve that. But I really do think that whatever it is you have to do, and my God, you have a lot to do, that the more clarity we we have about it, the easier it is to get done, but also the less stressful it seems. So you, you're you not going to turn into one of these people with 
six planners. Um, you're much more sensible than that. But all you need is a notebook. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. I June hit on something there, which is that I, I do think of you as someone who's probably allergic to, like, systematizing things. I am. Yeah, I like, am. like, like yeah. you know, um, and I sympathize with that for I am that way too. I think that if managing software is not going to do it, right, then go analog. Um, if having a complicated... Uh, system is not going to do it. Keep your system really simple and dumb. You know, just like play to your strengths because if it's too complicated or digital or whatever, you're just not going to do it, right? Yeah. So it's like you have to trick yourself and the way to trick yourself is to just admit your weaknesses or your weaknesses and 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 create a system for that. I would also say like, you have a lot, a lot going on. You're not even mentioning that you have two kids yeah. right. uh, and that you're parenting, you know, two, two school-age kids yeah. during a pandemic, yeah. you know, et cetera. And it might be time to hire someone to help you with this stuff. Ooh, you know, oh, it I might love be, this advice. It, it, it might <laughs> be time to not have a full-time personal assistant or anything, but it might be time to have someone who like is your personal assistant five hours a week or yeah. 10 hours a week yeah. or something that you essentially need, um, you know, in the theater world, you need a stage manager, right? You need like a stage exactly. manager for your yeah. life. No, and, I, yeah. I, and I actually think that that's what you need to do is that you have too much going on for you yourself to organize it. And you actually need to hire someone to help you do that and to manage it for you and with you and to figure out your calendar together. I do um, have this fantasy of like the project manager slash dominatrix who's just going to come in here and say like, okay, this has to go. This has to go. You're going to do this next Tuesday. Stop answering <laughs> your email right now. Like I just need someone to tell me what to do because I do feel like I'm sort of grasping at straws. And I think like some of it is just the tyranny of contemporary office culture, right? Like it's just like email after email, they pile up all of these tasks and I just need, I, I just wish I had this sort of like mythic person who could come over and say, here's what we're doing today, you know? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think you need a, a part-time personal assistant is actually, I think. So I need a, I need a Japanese calendar-wielding part-time personal assistant. I think exactly. Or, or a very bossy British matron. Yeah. That's what it sounds like <laughs> you really want. <laughs> What was that show where the where the bossy British matron would come in and nanny your kids and fix their super nanny? Super nanny. Super. I need. I need a super nanny for work. That's exactly it. Exactly. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And here's my Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and more important, right now, you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial right now at slate.com slash working plus. Thank you all uh, so much for listening here as we start our second year of the new creative process focused uh, working. And thank you so much to our amazing producer, Cameron Drews, for consistently whipping all of us into shape. (laughs) Thank you, Cameron. We'll be back next week with my interview with Heather Clark, the author of a new biography of Sylvia Plath. Until then, get back to work.
Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.